Henry Burke could hear the cat stuck in the wall, and he got the the foreman of the construction crew and told them to open up the wall. And of course, the construction foreman didn't want to spend the money to break down a wall that they just bricked, and then have to redo it because they would lose the money. And when he refused, Henry Burke grabbed the sledgehammer and smashed open the wall and let the cat out. Hi and welcome. We're the Winograds. I'm Nathan. And I'm Jennifer. Today is the first part of a several-part series that we're calling Yesterday, Today, and Tomorrow, Animal Sheltering in the United States. We figured this would be a good introduction to who we are for people that might be new to Nathan's Substack page. It will give you some of our history and work in the animal protection movement, but also in response to what we're seeing as some really disturbing backsliding regarding the no-kill movement over the last couple of years, with some of the large organizations now promoting some very harmful and anti-no-kill policies that don't seem to be informed by the past at all. So we wanted to do what Nathan did with his book, Redemption, which was put animal sheltering into an historical context. This has like, always worked really well for us to tell the story of how we get to certain points that we're at and the lessons that we have learned not only from the past, but also what those lessons hold for the future or what we should be doing now. I think one of the important things to clarify is that when when we talk about that the large national organizations are championing anti-no-kill policies, we're not necessarily talking about groups like the Humane Society of the United States or the ASPCA. I mean, they've long been opposed from the very beginning to the no-kill philosophy, and we've had to fight to implement the programs and services that make it possible, whereas the groups you're talking about or you talked about in the introduction are the groups that once championed no-kill like Best Friends Animal Society, like Austin Pets Alive, who have actually moved in the other direction towards more killing-oriented policies and towards doing less and less for animals rather than more and more as the no-kill philosophy demands. This conversation is maybe going to be new for some of those people that haven't read your book, Redemption, or haven't seen the documentary that's based on that. And we certainly recommend that if the stuff that we're talking about is new to you, that you also consider watching uh, Nathan's documentary, which is free on YouTube. And in that documentary, which is based on your book, the book you wrote after you created the first no-kill community in Ithaca, New York, you wanted to answer the question of how and why many of the humane societies and SPCAs across the nation that were founded by very dedicated individuals and with very high ideals when it came to the protection of animals eventually morphed into institutions that were collectively killing millions of them every year. In fact, they became the leading killers of dogs and cats in America. Why do you think it was important to tell that story? I wanted to lay out the history. I wanted to go back to the initial founding to explain to people what this movement was supposed to be, what went wrong in order to understand how to get back to our roots. And ironically, or maybe not so ironically, but our movement now, and I'm not just talking about the overall animal sheltering or humane movement, I'm specifically talking about the no-kill movement. Our movement started out with the same high ideals in order to reform a dysfunctional sheltering movement that had lost its way and the importance now of going back and re-explaining that history so that our own movement gets back to its roots. 
any discussion about the start of the humane movement in the United States, of course, there's only really one person that you can talk about when it comes to that, and that is the great Henry Berg, founder of the American Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals, or the ASPCA. How did you first learn about him? Well, when I was the director in Tompkins County, New York, the first no-kill community in the United States, I had a monthly column in the local newspaper called Pet Paris. And every month I would do an article on different aspects of either sheltering, uh, dog or cat or other animal care, just various animal issues. I talked about uh, defending wildlife, and I try to take a really broad-based animal rights approach to that column. And I did a column on the founding of our movement by the late, great Henry Berg in the 19th century. And when we left Tompkins County and created the No-Kill Advocacy Center in order to replicate the success of Tompkins County nationwide, I started writing Redemption. And as we discussed in the introduction, in order to answer the question, what went wrong, we had to start at the very beginning of how it was founded because it was founded on the right principles. He's even ahead of our own time in terms of how broad his vision was, how dedicated he was to the cause, and what he had hoped this organization he founded and this movement he birthed would become. So specifically, what era in American history are we talking about and what was happening in America at that time? So Henry Berg was born in 1813, and he was born to very progressive, very principled parents. His father was a shipbuilder. He was the first person who employed African Americans and paid them the same wages he paid white employees. And Henry Berg tells the story of his childhood where his father would have all these people, all his employees and others, in his home, and they would be discussing the issues of the day. A uh, very progressive man, a man dedicated to justice and fairness. In fact, his father had such a reputation for building quality products and giving people their money's worth that he won the contract to build ships for the U.S. Navy. So incredible wealth and incredible renown. And he, Henry Brooke tells the story of finding this coin in the street and bringing it to show his mother. And his mother explained to him that somebody dropped it and that was important to them and was valuable to them and might have meant the difference between eating and not eating that day, that coin that they lost. So she marched him back to where he found the coin and made him put it back. Now, of course, it's not clear whether the original person who dropped it ever got the coin back, but it made such an impression on Henry Berg that this idea of public service, of community, of fairness and justice would be themes that would run throughout the course of his life well into the founding of the First Humane Society in North America. Those political discussions that were occurring in the Burke House, they were likely very much a reflection of the climate of social change and improvement that had really gripped America at that time during the lead up to the Civil War. This was an era in which the abolitionist movement was founded, the women's suffrage and women's rights movements were founded, and there were also movements for prison reform and temperance and to abolish child labor. Um, and Henry, of course, be, was raised in the Unitarian Church, uh, which, along with the Quakers, was a church that had a very strong commitment to causes of this nature and must have also 
had a you know impact on his worldview. Is there any historical record that expressed an interest in animal welfare earlier in his life as a child or a young man? It's not clear from his upbringing that he ever wanted to do animal work. His goal was to to serve his country in the diplomatic service. And as we tell in the film Redemption, it's a goal that he thought, he, a life's goal that he thought he had realized when he was asked to serve in the office of the ambassador to Russia by then President Abraham Lincoln. And so he and his wife packed up. They went to St. Petersburg, but he found the duties boring and mundane and frustrated by not feeling like he was truly realizing his potential until one day he he said he used to take these aimless carriage rides around St. Petersburg. And one day he came across a Russian beating his donkey or draft horse. And he stopped the carriage and got out and told the man to stop, which the Russian peasant did in deference to this, you know, well-dressed gentleman of official position. And Henry Berg later wrote that it was at that moment that he found his true calling in life. He wrote in his diary that, at last, I found a way to utilize my gold lace and about the best use that can be made of it. So clearly this incident of writing a wrong really resonated with him. And given what he did next, it's clear that this event really helped clarify for him the meaning that he could bring to his life. But as a small aside, I I really want to invite people who are listening to this to take a moment to Google Henry Burke and just see what he looked like, because knowing what he looks like really can help animate the stories that we're going to tell you about him, because he really was a very formidable and very impressive looking man. Well, he was very tall, very broad-shouldered, very strong, and impeccably dressed. Yes, he he wore a top hat, carried a cane, was very well-dressed in a suit, uh, just the epitome of what you would think of as like a 19th century gentleman of wealth and power and position would look like. So he quit his job. He went to England to learn about the Royal SPCA, the Royal Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals. And then he came back to his native New York City, and he gave what was probably one of the first modern lectures on animal protection in the United States. And given his wealth and his position in New York society, everyone of means and position came out to hear him speak, including the then mayor of New York City. And it was a snowy day, and so they braved the snow and the slush, and they came to hear him give a lecture on the rights of animals. And about a hundred signatories came forward and signed Berg's Declaration of the Rights of Animals. It's that declaration he took to the state legislature in order to charter the first SPCA in North America, the American Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals, or what we know today as the ASPCA. And then he went back to the legislature and he lobbied for an animal cruelty law. Because prior to that time, animals were considered property. So it was not illegal to hurt animals because they were your property. It would be like smashing your own car. You have the right to do that, right? And it was not illegal to harm homeless animals because they were no one's property. So there was no property interest impacted. So he succeeded in getting an animal cruelty law passed that applied to all animals. 
And when he got that law passed and signed by the governor, he put a copy of the law in his pocket and he went to work that very evening and every night thereafter for two decades until his death. So explain what New York was like at that time when Henry returned to the city. What was it like for animals? This was a society that was essentially built on the backs of suffering animals. So at the time, for example, uh, New York City had the largest horse railway in the world. So these horses would be the equivalent of you know what we think of today as the subway system, right? So these horses would be pulling these cars. There were no laws in terms of rest, in terms of food and water, in terms of how packed the cars could be. And so typically you would see, as Henry Berg describes it, you would see horses pulling cars well beyond their capacity with noses bleeding, struggling, being whipped and beaten by their drivers. It was not uncommon, for example, to see horses that have fallen just being beaten to try to get them up, and if not, just to lay there dying in the street for days. You would have dogs, for example, on these treadmills churning butters, and they would literally run the dogs until they collapsed and died, and then they would put a different dog there. There were active clubs where dog fights occurred, where bear baiting occurred, where rats were released into an arena and dogs would be released to kill the rats. You had live pigeon shoots where sportsmen would have contests to see who can kill the most pigeons. It just seemed like everywhere Henry Berg looked, there was cruelty. Clearly, Henry Berg loved animals because he intervened when he saw that man beating his horse. And then with that mindset, he comes back to New York uh, with the goal that he's going to stop this cruelty wide scale. And it's virtually everywhere. Imagine what that that would be like. Like, we still have a lot of animal cruelty in our society, but most of it is hidden away from view, like in farms and laboratories and slaughterhouses. But now, like, imagine what it would be like to step outside your door every day and have to witness someone, like, beating their horse or seeing a dying horse in the gutter or animal abuse as entertainment, you know, that sort of thing. It would be awful. And so one of the many things that I think I feel so grateful for about Henry Berg's work is that ultimately he made people much less intolerant of animal suffering and cruelty by eliminating it in the public sphere where people would, would become numb to it or reconciled like to it being there or it, their, its perceived necessity. So like, you know, you and I get stressed out sometimes and we go outside and we worry that we might encounter an animal on the side of the road that we have to, we have to do, like we talked about in another podcast, like we have to do the double check as, but you know, those instances are pretty rare for us. I think it in Henry Berg's time, it was more than a risk or a potentiality. It was a virtual certainty because, you know, just stepping out during rush hour and seeing these horses pulling this cart full of people packed to the gills and the horses bleeding, skinny horses, you know, lame horses being driven until they literally collapse and then being left on the sidewalk. People stacking sheep or goats or pigs or other animals, taking them to the slaughterhouse, knowing what was going to happen to those animals or having them packed on top of each other so that the those on the bottom either suffocate or get crushed. The idea of dog fighting or bear baiting or rat killing as entertainment or the dairies using dogs to churn butter, it was everywhere. 
And so you stepped outside in 19th century New York. Animal cruelty, even if they didn't conceive it as such, was always in your face. Yes, and in fact, when something is that ubiquitous, the you know the idea of conceiving that it could ever be otherwise, as Henry did, is really remarkable. And more than that, it, it's to see such widespread cruelty that it is literally woven into the fabric of daily life and determining that you're going to do something about that. Like that isn't, that's not just courageous. Like that is extraordinary. It is extraordinary. And when we look back from our vantage point, it seems inconceivable. But when Henry Berg started to initiate his reforms, he was ridiculed, horrifically ridiculed by those in his own social circles who he was constantly fighting with in the press and in the courts by all the owners of the railway lines, which included some of you know America's highest families like the Vanderbilts, the owners of the slaughterhouses or the the dairies. He fought with them. And it was thought that he was indifferent to the constant ridicule, but his wife would often find him in his room, sometimes weeping at the ridicule that was heaped his way, but he never let it stop him from doing what he believed was right. In spite of his sensitivity to the attacks, he once said that two or three years of ridicule and abuse have thickened the epidermis of my sensibilities, and I have acquired the habit of doing the thing I think right, regardless of public clamor. And you can just go online to the New York Historical Society or the New York Public Library, and you'll find cartoon after cartoon ridicule Henry Berg for his ideas that not only that animals mattered, but that we had a proactive duty not to be cruel to them and to better their plight. And in those cartoons, like, you know, which were meant to have very broad appeal, well, you know, they showed just how well known Henry Burke had become because those cartoons had to make sense to people. So they must have known who he was. In fact, he became a very prominent figure in New York City at that time, so much so that you could argue that he was iconic. Yes, Henry Berg was constantly in the press, constantly dragging people who abused animals in front of magistrates. He led raids in these dogfighting operations and these rat-killing operations. He challenged sportsmen's clubs to ban live pigeon shoots. He brought landmark cases. He was a fixture of daily and nightly life. He was so effective that within two years of the ASPCA's incorporation, there were water troughs for thirsty horses throughout the cities. He fought and won limits on the number of hours that horses could work, limits on the number of passengers that these cars can carry. I mean, these were laws that were broken, but Henry Berg was there with a copy of the anti-cruelty law and his badge from the ASPCA because one of the things that he did was not only succeed in getting the anti-cruelty law passed, but he succeeded in giving the ASPCA the legal power to enforce the law. And so he would go out there with a badge. And if he would see these cars being pulled beyond the horse's capacity, he would literally stop the horses in their tracks, which is probably where that expression comes from. 
And so to this man, it was nothing to stop all traffic in the busiest railway in the world to protect a single horse. And then what he would say when after he stopped the carts was just truly masterful in terms of getting people to cooperate with him. So he would exert peer pressure to get people to do the right thing by saying, all good Christians disembark. And they would, or at least, you know, most of them would, and the rest he would have to force to come down because they were violating the law. We know also that when he created the headquarters at the ASPCA, like he chose an office with a very large window overlooking Broadway, which even then was very busy because he wanted to constantly monitor and be looking out the window to see any instances of animal cruelty that he might have to, um, that might require his intervention. 24-7, you know, like at night he would roam the streets and during the day he would be in his office and he would be overlooking this busy thoroughfare. This consumed his daily life. He, He once wrote, day after day, I am in slaughterhouses or lying in wait at midnight with a squad of police near some dog pit through the filthy markets and about the rotten docks, out in the crowded and dangerous streets, lifting a fallen horse to his feet or perhaps sending the driver before a magistrate, penetrating dark and unwholesome buildings where I inspect collars and saddles for raw flesh, then lecturing in public schools to children and again to adult societies. Thus, my whole life is spent. The breadth of what he saw his mandate as So, for example, there was no area of abuse that he wouldn't touch. And he was such a ubiquitous figure that when people came across something that they found disturbing, somebody would say, go get Mr. Berg. And in one case, a construction company was putting up a building in New York City and some passersby heard a cat meowing in the walls of this new building. And apparently when they were putting up the building, the cat went in and then they sealed the wall and the cat got trapped inside the wall. And somebody said, go get Mr. Berg. Somebody ran to the ASPCA offices on Broadway and 12th and got Mr. Berg and they brought him back and Henry Berg could hear the cat stuck in the wall and he got the the foreman of the construction crew and told him to open up the wall and of course the construction foreman didn't want to spend the money to break down a wall that they just bricked and then have to redo it because they would lose the money and when he refused Henry Berg grabbed the sledgehammer and smashed open the wall and let the cat out. I mean that's how dedicated Uh, He was, and it earned him both respect, but also censure from those who thought he was going too far. Yeah, such a broad mandate when it came to what he thought his organization should do. And this isn't, this is going to definitely tie into what we talk about later on in future podcasts about what the future of animal sheltering should be. But in many ways, it's just looking back to the model that Henry Berg created of being a source for good for animals in your community, whatever the issue. I mean, today, SPCAs and humane societies are so identified with dogs and cats. And what's missing and what's been forgotten is that. It isn't how these organizations started out because, you know, Berg was very influential and people across the country mimicked him and created their own groups like the ASPCA and followed his model, his model of animal activism. And he certainly didn't bring to that mandate the same kind of narrow vision that now dominates the American imagination. 
And so it wasn't just that he was pushing for laws and proactively enforcing those laws, but he was trying to change hearts and minds by lecturing about a broad view of animal protection to various social institutions and clubs, or by advocating that cruel traditions be replaced with more humane ones, such as the clay pigeon, right, to replace real pigeons for shooting contests. And that, too, brings up another important and interesting point about him, and that's that he didn't care what the reason was or what the social status of the person was who was harming an animal. Even, for instance, when it was a sportsman shooting pigeons who might likely be his peers, like he didn't care. What mattered was that the way the animal was being treated and not who it was that was committing that harm, right? Right. He would stop the horse railway conductor and drag him before a magistrate, but then he would also go after the Vanderbilts and the other high society owners of the lines. Most people don't realize this, but Henry Berg came close to banning hunting in the state of New York. And he also, unfortunately, unsuccessfully lobbied to ban medical experimentations on animals. He wanted to ban vivisection. Every time Henry Berg saw abuse of animals and he went after it, he was always accused of, you're going too far. But what was really fascinating about Henry Berg is that he had a focus on individual rights as opposed to kind of this broader view of species or, you know, let's just generally improve welfare in general. If there was a very specific animal that was being harmed, regardless of if that animal was a horse, if that animal was a dog at the hands of the cruel dog catchers, if the animal was a cow on the way to slaughter, or a cow in a filthy dairy lot, uh, rats being killed by dogs in some pit. In fact, he has this beautiful quote that he once said when he was accused of going too far. He he wrote, Almighty God entertains no discriminating partiality for any of his creatures, but his affection is extended to all alike. The insect in the plant, the moth which spends its brief hours of existence in hovering about the candle's flame, nay, the life which inhabits a drop of water, is as much an object of his special providence as the mightiest monarch on his throne. And so he never let the prejudices of the day hold him back from, you know, Henry Berg had this idea that, and and it's an idea we've tried, tried to push as well, but Henry Berg had this idea that humans are the most creative, most resourceful species on the planet. And while, while might does not make right, it does create affirmative obligations. And he saw it as the, as his mission and the mission of the ASPCA to meet those obligations in ways that extended to the whole of of what he would call creation of to all his fellow earthlings, uh, including abused children. I mean, Henry Berg was the founder of the first Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Children, and he successfully brought cruelty cases against children. Those movements would eventually split off, but we can thank Henry Berg for laws against, you know, because children, like animals, were seen as property of their parents. And in many cases, the courts did not want to interfere in the affairs of the family until 
the man they called the great meddler, Henry Berg, meddled and won important victories, not just in creating those organizations, but also in securing convictions. This focus on individual rights, like, I don't think it was an accident, but I think it, like, was a reflection of the era in which he lived, too. I mean, these rights were often invoked in other causes at that time, just like he did with the rights of the Declaration on the Rights of Animals, um, in which early founders of other movements, like the Women's Rights Movement, had done with their Declaration on the Rights of Women in Seneca Falls, which was also in New York in the middle of the 19th century. In other words, it's like in referencing those rights, he was certainly following a model of other groups, which were also advocating for marginalized individuals and trying to place animals in that really noble and what was proving to be like really highly effective tradition of asserting what rights we are all born with. Right. While historically people discriminated on the basis of different groups of people. So first it was men or white male property owners. And then it was extended to the, you know, the freed slaves. And then it was extended to women. And eventually it was extended to children. Henry Berg took it to its logical conclusion. And he wanted to see it uh, extended to all his fellow earthlings. This is actually something that you've been talking a little bit about lately on your Facebook page in responding to people who might suggest that we should focus on animals instead of people. And you, you know, like Henry, have argued that advocating for animals doesn't take anything away from advocating for humans. And in fact, I think Henry would say that advocating for animals, you know, made the world a kinder and gentler place and that benefited everybody. Right, because the less cruelty there was in the world, the the higher the expectations of people and the less tolerance they have. Yeah, I think that's certainly true. Like, imagine... If you could take modern people out of our era and put them on a street in New York where there were horses being beaten and how intolerant people would be of that kind of abuse because they have been raised with a higher expectation of how we should treat animals. For that, the road leads to Henry Berg. And, you know, most people, when when they think of organizations like the ASPCA and other humane societies, they think about dogs and cats. And even though his mandate was much broader, it didn't take long for Henry Berg to also set his sights on, I mean, he was already focused on things like dogs being used in industries, dog fighting, uh, rat killing, bear baiting, things of that nature. But he was also concerned about the plight of New York City's homeless dogs. Yes, in fact, this conversation really contrasts with what humane societies and SPCAs are now doing today. Like, it's so different from what he thought, which was that his mandate was to protect dogs from anyone who wants to harm them. And certainly that included the local pound that would round them up and kill them. Right. So if you look at the mission of a 20th century ASPCA bastardized from the founding vision of Henry Berg. He saw its mission essentially as protecting animals from people, whereas it sort of flipped in the 20th century to ostensibly protect people from animals, and by that they meant kill kill the dogs, kill the cats. And Henry Berg had a very different conception of what the role of the ASPCA was. And So there was a very different conception because of ignorance of the perceived threat that homeless dogs posed to people. And their primary fear was rabies, but they called it hydrophobia back then. And so every summer for a period of 90 days, the pound would open 
and to round up and kill all the stray dogs, ostensibly to protect people from rabies. And in order to encourage dogs to be rounded up, the pound master would pay kids 50 cents for every dog that they brought to the pound to be killed, no questions asked. And so these dogs would be rounded up off the street. They would be stolen from people's yards. In some cases, they would literally be ripped out of people's arms to sell to the pound master. And, you know, there were no adoption programs back then. These dogs would be thrown in a large room. They weren't given water. They weren't fed. They were held for a minimal period. And then they would be drowned in the East River in what the local newspaper called the Terrible Iron Crate with as many as 80 dogs drowned at a time, and the largest dogs hit about the head with a club so that they stayed underwater. And Henry Berg did a borough-by-borough, precinct-by-precinct review and found that there wasn't a single documented case of a New Yorker getting rabies from the bite of a stray dog, and he fought to end this practice. He fought to reduce the amount paid. He fought to make it illegal for anyone under 18 years old from turning dogs in. He often bailed out dogs on behalf of people whose dogs were taken into the pound and and who were being held on threat of execution if they didn't pay the pound master, whatever the fee was to reclaim the dog. And in one year alone, he charged 12 dog catchers with animal cruelty and succeeded in reducing significantly the number of dogs rounded up and killed, so much so that New York City's aldermen actually offered, tired of fighting Henry Berg, actually offered him the money to run the dog pound, and he refused. It's no wonder that, like, think about that. It's no wonder that he refused because You know, if you didn't have any conception of SPCAs and humane societies being the people that round up and kill animals, like the suggestion that his society would do that is like actually quite absurd. Well, I mean, it would be the equivalent of saying to an environmental group, can you run the oil derricks off the coast? And in fact, he said that this society could not stultify its principles so far as to encourage the tortures which the proposed give rise to. He did not want his organization to do the city's bidding and kill dogs. And in fact, he said, let us abolish the pound. One summer, there was uh, infighting between the mayor's office and the health commissioner, and the pound simply failed to open. And so there was no roundup that year. And Henry Berg uh, happily noted that there wasn't a single case of rabies. From the dogs, there weren't increased reports of people being bitten by dogs. Uh, The prior abuses of years past didn't happen that year, and no ill effects materialized. One of my favorite stories that I think says a lot about Henry Berg and the way that he viewed the mission of a society and how it should be operated was the story of the governor coming to visit him in his office and tripping over a very threadbare rug on the floor and saying to Henry Berg, um, Mr. Berg, you know, let me buy you a new rug. And what did Henry say? Yeah, so the governor shows up and trips over a hole in this old carpet and says, I will write you a check and to replace the carpet. 
And Henry Berg said to him, yes, write him a check, uh, but he will use it instead for the animals. Because Henry Berg, when he founded the ASPCA and he rented the offices, uh, the original offices that no longer exist on Broadway and 12th, I think it's the Strand Bookstore now, is where the original ASPCA headquarters was with the big picture window overlooking Broadway where he can see the abuse. He outfitted it with the plainest kind of furniture so that most of the money could go to animal programs. So the governor said, I'll buy you new carpet. And he said, no, give us the money. We'll use it for the animals. The carpet's fine. And it was a kind of theme through Henry's philosophy that an ASPCA should spend the money it gets to help animals, right? I mean, it doesn't sound very revolutionary, but when you think today, for example, that the uh, the CEO of the ASPCA, the person who sits in the chair that was once held by Henry Berg, gets uh, paid over $800,000 a year, and that the vast percentage of the revenues that the ASPCA takes in goes back into fundraising or non-animal programs. You can see a, a tremendous disconnect between the ASPCA of Henry's time in terms of its philosophy over what donations should be used for and the ASPCA of today. In fact, Henry worried a lot about the corrupting influence of large salaries and power. So in addition to advocating for the animals of New York City, Henry Burke also served as a inspiration for animal lovers across the country. And so it really is important in terms of the animal welfare landscape nationally in the one that we actually live with even to this day, how Henry Burke's example inspired a lot of copycats, right? He was in constant contact writing letters back and forth with other uh, people in other cities around the country who wanted to model their own organizations after Henry Berg's ASPCA, including the one that I used to work at, the San Francisco SPCA, when someone who actually knew Henry Berg, because they occupied, even though he lived on the other coast, occupied similar social circles. And he had a similar experience to Henry Berg's experience in St. Petersburg, where he came across someone abusing an animal in in public. The animal was being taken to the slaughterhouse and broke free and ran and was pursued by what, what they called a vaquero, who lassoed the animal about the hind limbs, and another one lassoed the animal by the four limbs, and they dragged the animal across the city's rough cobblestones. And a passerby, James Sloan Hutchinson, saw this and was so moved by it in the same way that Henry Berg was moved by seeing this Russian beating his draft horse in St. Petersburg that he wrote a letter to Henry Berg and founded what became the San Francisco SPCA. And it wasn't long before other humane societies and SPCAs began to dot the American landscape. Oh, sorry. Excuse the noise. It's a cat. Getting, it's a cat getting on Nathan's lap. So um, anyway, uh, again, like none of these organizations had the traditional platform that we think of now. I mean, they were very they were advocacy organizations with the very broad animal. Oh, I would even say animal rights platform in their community. 
Right. A lot of them were anti-vivisectionist. A lot of them were vegetarian. Uh, a lot of them fought to ban hunting. A good number of them also modeled themselves after Henry Berg's Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Children and had a dual mission of both animal protection and protection of children. Eventually, like the ASPCA, they turned their sights to the cruelty at their local pounds, because regardless of whether it was New York or Chicago or San Francisco, the roundup of dogs tended to happen during the summer months, and the dogs were killed in some of the most horrific ways possible. In New York City, they were drowned in the East River. In other places, they were shot. And in Philadelphia, for example, they were beaten to death in the public squares. And all these organizations focused on oversight of and reform of institutions that harmed animals until the founders died. And then the missions were betrayed. So being the very influential group the ASPCA was, a lot of groups actually also modeled themselves on what the ASPCA did after Henry Berg's death, too, unfortunately. And what they did was sort of a reflection of the greatest fears that Burke had had while he was alive. And one of them was about the corrupting influence of, what did he say, money money and politics? Well, he was concerned both about the corrupting influence of money. He often said that politics has nothing to do with animal protection. It is a moral question in all respects. And he also feared and would say to his wife, literally, I hate to think what will become of this society when I am gone. What he once wrote was that the chief obstacle to successive movements like this is that they almost invariably gravitate into question of money or politics. Such questions are repudiated here completely. If I were paid a large salary, I should lose that enthusiasm, which has been my strength and my safeguard. So obviously, uh, he feared the corrupting influence of money, but he also feared that the organization would, when after he died, would stop taking positions, seeking reform, trying to help animals by making political calculations. So, for example, Henry Berg was willing to go after the Vanderbilts, one of the wealthiest and most powerful families in America that owned the horse railway lines in New York City at the time, even though they were well-connected politically, right? Well, not just powerful friends politically, but probably in his own social circle. Right. He was not afraid to go after gentlemen as quickly who, who were harming animals, like with the pigeon shoots, as quickly as he did people on, on the lower rungs of society. So for him, if again, it's the focus on individual rights. If animals were being harmed, he saw it as his duty to help them, regardless of who was behind the abuse. And he feared that after his death, that his society would no longer do that and right. become more political rather than moral. And um, Henry Berg, being the brilliant man that he was, you know, he was absolutely right. And that that is exactly what happened. He had every reason to fear those things. So what happened on his death? I mean, we know it was kind of a profound moment for New York City when they lost him because he had been such a fixture. Every night for almost two decades, 
he would patrol the city streets protecting animals. And one night in March of 1888, New York was experiencing one of the worst winter storms it had had in years. And as the horses pulled cars through the sleet and the snow for the first time in almost two decades, Henry Berg wasn't there to protect them because in the early morning hours, he died. And even those who fought with him and newspaper editors that he ridiculed on him realized that New York lost one of its pillars, a fixture of New York City life. And one of the local newspapers wrote that his society was decidedly a one-man power. Henry Berg was the ASPCA, and the ASPCA was Henry Berg. And in fact, the poet Henry Wadsworth Longfellow wrote of him, Among the noblest of the land, though he may count himself the least, the man I honor and revere, who without favor, without fear, in the great city dares to stand, the friend of every friendless beast. And tragically, it did not take long for his worst fears to come to pass. Against his express wishes and the vision he had for the ASPCA, the organization accepted the pound contract for the city of New York and within a very short period of time became the leading killer of dogs and later cats in the city and tragically other SPCAs and humane societies followed suit and by the middle of the 20th century, these organizations shed their traditional platforms of advocating for the rights of all animals to harming them, and did little more than kill dogs and cats. So from the period following Henry Berg's death until well into the 20th century, into the 1970s, these organizations were killing somewhere in the neighborhood of 16, 17 million of them every single year. I think it's important to add that some of these organizations that took over the pound contract, they did so for what they believed were noble purposes. And they put in place a three-point plan. First, they offered some animals for adoption. That had not been done before until these organizations took over. Second, they started advocating for dogs and cats as companions and promoting lifetime commitments. And third, they introduced what they felt were, were more humane ways of killing. In Philadelphia, they got rid of beating the dogs. They moved towards the gas chamber, which, of course, is inhumane, but they felt was improvement over some really brutal ways of killing. So that three-point plan, adopt some, promote lifetime commitments, and more quote-unquote humane ways of killing became the mainstays of sheltering after these organizations took over and eventually were adopted by the American Humane Association, which was the first truly national organization that was focused on companion animals. Also how these organizations became very much identified in the American imagination with primarily dogs and cats and um, sheltering. With places to go adopt 
and places where animals lost their lives, were killed. And so that was the extent of the innovation since Henry Berg's death and the idea that we they could do anything else. That kind of innovation completely stopped. So you would have uh, national conferences focused on how to help pound employees cope with the stress of killing. But the idea of not killing, of innovation that would eliminate the need to kill was drowned out under this cliche, this myth that there were too many animals and not enough home. This change also had a profound impact on the goals of these organizations, right? You're not going to get the likes of a Henry Berg working at a place uh, where all they do is kill animals. So like when the founders of these organizations died, the people that took over and were willing to work at them were basically people that were okay working at a slaughterhouse of dogs and cats. And that job description certainly discouraged people who love animals from applying. And then think, I mean, even if you do go work at them because you care about animals, it's very unlikely that you're going to stay. You're probably going to end up leaving. And so that leaves animals at the mercy of people who are reconciled to the killing. And being reconciled to the killing means that you don't really feel any need to innovate or to do anything about it. Correct. And well into the 1970s until one city decided to recapture its roots, which is a topic we'll talk about in the next section. In our next conversation, part two of this series, we will talk about how the betrayal of Henry Berg's vision led to over a century of mass killing. In the 1970s, however, the seeds of a no-kill nation were starting to bear fruit, but those efforts were resisted by a calcified movement reliant on killing. Indeed, so hostile to ending the killing were the leaders of these institutions that the Vice President of the Humane Society of the United States called efforts to do so as so impossible they were not worthy of a passing daydream. This intransigence continued well into the 1990s when, as young animal rights advocates, we dared to dream and set about the task of ending the killing of millions of dogs and cats. In the end, it was not so impossible after all. If you enjoy our conversations, please subscribe to Nathan's Substack page, where you can learn more about our work, including our seven books. For more information about the No-Kill Philosophy and our nonprofit organization, the No-Kill Advocacy Center, visit nokilladvocacycenter.org. Music